Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month we read the 2014 book Zero to One by Peter Thiel. In Zero to One, Thiel, a co-founder of PayPal and Palantir, as well as an early investor in Facebook, describes what conditions make for a great startup. Part history lesson, part economics lesson, and mostly business advice, Zero to One is a succinct book full of powerful ideas. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. I'm David Short. I'm a former consultant and product manager. My name is Molson Hart. I'm an entrepreneur with a toy company and a litigation financing business, and I just went for a run, and I'm feeling that dopamine rush. Nice. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So who's Peter Thiel? Who's the author of this book? So Peter Thiel was born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1967. He is now actually a citizen of, I believe, Germany, the United States, and New Zealand. Um, his family moved to Cleveland when he was an infant and then lived in South Africa and Namibia before settling in California when he was 10. He was the valedictorian of his high school class and went to Stanford where he studied philosophy and then to Stanford Law School. He then failed to get a Supreme Court clerkship, worked briefly at Sullivan Cromwell, a um, high-end New York law firm. Uh, he was he left there after actually seven months and then uh, started working as a derivatives trader at Credit Suisse while simultaneously being the speechwriter for the Secretary of Education. And then after a few years, he stopped that and founded Teal Capital in 1996 with some friends and family money. From there, he co-founded PayPal in 1998, 1999 with Max Levchin, where he was first an investor and then ultimately took over as CEO. They sold PayPal to eBay in 2002 for $1.5 billion after having merged with Elon Musk's X.com. At that point, he made $55 million from the sale and founded Clarium Capital, a global macro hedge fund. He helped launch Palantir, as you already mentioned, where he's still the chairman. He started Founders Fund, which is a venture capital firm where he's a partner. Valor Ventures, Mithril Capital. He seems to really like to create businesses with Lord of the Rings uh, references. He was also part-time a partner at YC um, and probably got pushed out because of his support for Donald Trump, although that, that's not fully confirmed. And then he does a fair amount of philanthropy. He has a Teal Fellowship where he pays promising college students $100,000 to drop out and focus on building something. He funds research in AI, life extension, seasteading. He also notoriously funded the Hulk Hogan lawsuit that bankrupted Gawker. <laughs> And he is a billionaire. So most of that is due to his 2004 investment in Facebook. He was the first outside money and he bought 10.2% of the company for $500,000, which he has almost entirely liquidated now. He's a pretty controversial guy, right? So why is somebody who's so controversial able to get onto the, the boards of so many companies and become uh, stay on those boards, frankly, in the atmosphere of Silicon Valley, where kind of there's an anti-conservative bias, right? I mean, he's a billionaire. That would be my that would be my my main guess. But I think he also is a really outside the box thinker, and I think he probably does add a lot of value on the board. I bet he does like question people's assumptions. I bet he does press leaders. I think he does have and lay out a very you know clear and cogent business philosophy. And I, I mean, I would certainly appreciate him as an advisor. So is Peter Thiel? He's not on the board of any other companies besides Palantir, which he founded, and Facebook, uh, in which he was a really early investor, right? 
I think other than that, it's only, again, venture firms and whatnot where he is also you know, a founder. So yeah, I think you're right. He probably hasn't really gotten the opportunity because he is so outspoken, is like, you know, radically libertarian and whatnot. Although supporting Donald Trump, I don't know how libertarian you could say he is. Yeah. So to your point, to Kovac's point with him being controversial, I mean, this doesn't matter to me at all. I could, I could care if someone's controversial. In fact, I prefer someone who's contro- controversial on my board, kind of all things equal. You know, he founded Down Theory, so he's obviously going to have a say on that board. And then uh, for Facebook, it was an early investment. So, uh, you know, he, he's on that board by virtue of having put his money uh, into that company very early. But don't think he's going to be nominated for a, uh, a very brand conscious uh, company right now without having founded that company or been an early investor. I love this book. I love the central premise in it of zero to one versus one to N and using that as a lens to think about different companies and how innovative what they're doing really is. I also like the contrast between the United States and China, thinking about some of the innovations in the United States over the last hundred years, mostly as zero to one and how China's grown over the last 30 years from one to N. Did that concept really appeal to the two of you? I'm not sure I totally understand it, actually. And so I'd, I'd like to, to hear more from you guys. I like the basic premise of like incremental change versus radical change, like is is truly a different kind of thing. But then the he, examples he gives, I don't I don't actually know exactly what he means, because I mean, Facebook, while it was incredibly successful and whatnot, I feel like it was kind of a one one to end thing from MySpace or whatever, like adding real identity was certainly like innovative and a good idea, but it wasn't like there was nothing in the social networking space at all prior to Facebook. So I guess I'm not 100% sold on the consistency of his concept. I'm not sure his concept is... Facebook is not a good example of his concept, but I think his concept is generally right. Are you guys aware of whether or not there was another social network, which kind of like I don't want to say enforced real identity because at the beginning, Facebook wasn't enforcing real identity and you could be whatever you wanted to be on Facebook. So in that way, it was definitely one to end. But, you know, were there other like was Friendster? Was that like a real identity social network or was it also kind of like of the MySpace type where you could just like kind of where it was like encouraged to be whatever you wanted to be? I was on Friendster, but I honestly don't remember. And it was like all my sister's friends. So that was why I never really used the site. But I think it was just a, you know, handle or whatever. I think you could call yourself whatever you wanted to. I think I'm sure people did use their real names, just like on MySpace. I'm sure people use their real names too, but those didn't enforce it. Facebook did try to, and the basic premise was that you had to have a school account and that was your name. And so they sort of confirmed it in that way. But for instance, at Dartmouth, we could create whatever separate email addresses we wanted for ourselves. So I actually created like a second email address for myself with like some random, you know, name that some other person wanted to open a Facebook account when, you know, I was a freshman and she was a you know senior in high school. And so, you know, yeah, she was able to open a Facebook account with like sort of random words that were that that handle. I think it was like color of love or something like that. <laughs> So, I, okay. So I, I think we can tie this. I think I finally figured out why he calls this zero to one and then one to N after many years of being confused. Um, so I think that the numbers here reference the number of companies of that type. So when you go from zero to one, it is the first company of that type to exist. And then one to N are kind of like all the copycat companies that come into existence after the fact that kind of engage in commoditized, non-monopolistic uh, competition, which results in low to no profits 
for those participants. Obviously, that didn't really happen with Facebook because of network effects, but that's my interpretation of it. And so going back to kind of like what you brought up, I would say that Facebook, yeah, it was pretty zero to one. If it was the first social network to kind of have halfway enforce real identity, but in a way it was also like 0.5 to one in that sense, because Friendster existed in 2002 and you know, there are a whole bunch of them, MySpace, Orkut, whatever. Does that, does that make sense to you guys or, or not really? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think I like how you linked it into his other concept, which is you want to be a monopoly. So you don't want to be in a perfect competition market, according to Teal, because of course, in a perfect competition market, there are no profits. You always want to be doing something that's innovative enough that nobody can exactly be doing what you're doing, or maybe you can enforce it through patents or intellectual property protections um, so that other people can't be reaping the part of your profit share. So I, I actually, I found the quote. So he says, when we think about the future, we hope for a future of progress. That progress can take one of two forms. Horizontal or extensive progress means copying things that work, going from one to N. Horizontal progress is easy to imagine because we already know what it looks like. Vertical or intensive progress means doing new things, going from zero to one. Vertical progress is hard to imagine because it requires something that nobody has ever done. If you take one typewriter and build 100, you have made horizontal progress. If you have a typewriter and build a word processor, you have made vertical progress. Yeah, again, I I don't think it's it's super straightforward. And I think your, your basic idea is right. Like essentially, it's you're doing a new business that no one has ever done before. You're building the first typewriter before you build the next 100. I, I think his concept is... Is actually it's amazing. It's just just this way of explaining it is bizarre, and like the semantics are also a little bit weird. And I don't know, his examples are sometimes strange. Uh, you know, he kind of has to bring up Facebook because you know I, I'm I'm not sure anyone would be reading this book were it not for Facebook for him. That was pretty important for him making his name. How is it any different from the concept of first mover advantage? I don't think it necessarily is totally different. I mean, I think I think I think they're similar. And he doesn't actually say that you have to be the first mover. He says you have to be the last mover. That's that's like his one of the other sections where he goes in. So he kind of says that it is okay. Like there can still be really successful businesses, even if you are the the N version, if somehow you do sort of solve some of the other issues that whatever the other one had failed at, you you create a true monopoly in some way. You have like some better version of it that really does mean that no one else can compete with you in the long run. Right. I mean, you can start out with that first mover advantage. You can be the innovator in the space. And if you really, really, really drop the ball on execution, someone else is going to beat you. And it's hard to come up with examples like that. But I, maybe some of the search engines... Like car companies and you know Ford or whatever, right? I mean, again, they didn't win in the very long run, but they weren't the first car company by any means. It was you know the innovations within the execution that made them really successful. Yeah, you could say GM overtaking Ford is an example of uh, Ford clearly having that first mover zero to one advantage. I mean, I'm not, I think the automobile was invented in Germany by Benz, but you know, in America, at least uh, Ford is as close as you're going to come to, to zero to one, but then GM overtook them uh, somewhat later. I, I, and, and I would argue, how did they, how did they do that? They basically did that through a zero to one type strategy, right? So it's my understanding that the way that GM did that is they offered like, multiple models, multiple colors. I'm not like super well-versed on the history of GM, but that was something that Ford wasn't doing, right? They're kind of formed famous for like, hey, we make one car, it's called Model T, and it comes in black. I think David meant that Ford wasn't the first company to create cars, but they were the first company to 
effectively use the assembly line to create cars very efficiently. And so they were zero to one in terms of uh, their process for actually making the cars rather than necessarily on the surface, just zero to one making a car. Is that right, David? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think I'm still getting confused about what we mean by zero to one, because if we're saying four to zero to one because they added the assembly line to car production and then GM is zero to one because they added multiple. Again, I just I feel like to some degree, it's like, let's not focus too much on what zero to one means. Exactly. This book has a lot of other great insights. But I think the real uh, takeaway is truly innovative things are a lot more difficult to do than, you know, tacking on. Uh, you know, a 10% improvement in the, you know, process for doing something. I had a differentiated viewpoint on that, on that comment. Okay. So first of all, just, I know that we're beating this horse to death. I don't care. Um, I, Teal would definitely argue that the assembly line, I misunderstood your original point, was a zero to one innovation because you did have the typewriter and then just kind of like moving the typewriter to a computer. It's not like you're reinventing writing from the beginning, you know, it's like, you're still effectively you know, generating written documents, you're still typing on a keypad. It's just slightly different, but you still call it a zero one. All right. So here's how I, here's like the insight that I think that is missing from this book that I think is really interesting. Innovative strategies are actually easier to execute than non-innovative strategies. Yeah. And it like just, it, it basically just comes back to kind of what Teal is saying. It's just like, if you're executing on, I mean, obviously if you have an innovative strategy that, People don't want like good luck executing on like pants for cats or <laughs> ice cream for dogs or what, you know, maybe dogs that's like okay. ice cream, but you know what I'm saying? But like, if you do have something that's innovative that people want execution for that type of stuff is actually super easy. What's really hard is like today be like, Hey, us three, we like cars. Let's start a car company right now. And you know what? We're going to do gas cars because we like gasoline. We think that's cool. That's hard to execute on. But if like we, you know, figured out some bizarre, cool way to power our cars with algae, as ridiculous as that might sound, that actually might be easier to execute on because there'd be no competition in the market. And we probably wouldn't be engaging in that anyway, unless it was bringing something new to the table. And, you know, we, you know, even as I talk about it, right, the marketing for that stuff is, is, it's more interesting. It's like, yeah, that is the algae powered car. You know, at, at worst, we're getting a stupid article in TechCrunch because it's just so out there, right? So in that way, innovative strategies kind of are um, easier to execute on. Right. They're easier to execute on because you have no competition. Yeah, exactly. So another way of summarizing it is doing something different and better. Like, so a a zero to one has to be something different. That's the whole, that's the main difference between a zero to one and a one to N. And obviously it has to be something better than what's in the marketplace before and nobody would buy it. So it has to be different and better. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's as close as we're going to get. I mean, we can break down to the nuance. I mean, I would even argue that like manufacturing in China after 2002, right? So China comes into the WTO, just manufacturing everything that we were making in America, doing it in China, that was zero to one. I mean, now you'd be like, oh yeah, that's like so obvious. And, you know, there's nothing innovative about that. But like at the time you were, you were bringing manufacturing to a essentially dysfunctional communist country that was like operating on like rock bottom wages. And, you know, that was sufficient differentiated competition wise for you to literally beat established players that were competing in other countries. So, yeah, I mean, Teal is like, oh yeah, that's, that's one to end. That's globalization, but you know, it's a differentiated strategy that works. So in my mind, at least it's, it's zero to one. 
Yeah, Teal would definitely disagree because he does explicitly call out globalization as being like the antithesis. There's like a, because globalization and technology are different modes of progress, it's possible to have both, either or neither at the same time. For example, 1815 to 1914 was a period of both rapid technological development and rapid globalization. Between the First World War and Kissinger's trip to reopen relations with China, there was a rapid technological development, but not much globalization. Since 1971, we've seen rapid globalization along with limited technological development mostly confined to IT. So, I mean, he he does think about it as being like technology is the zero to one kind of thing versus just implementing something in a different part of the world or whatever is inherently just like you're copying something. But I think you're right, like th- knowing how to do it, being able to set up the systems to be able to do it. There, you know, wasn't necessarily the trade infrastructure and, you know, all the, you know, massive shipping lanes and whatnot at that point. So, you know, you did have to do a lot of big changes, but it was with, you know, old technology just moving to where there's cheaper labor. I mean, a lot of what I feel, I feel like he might have like a slightly biased tech, technology bent here. Like, I feel like a lot of more recent startups and maybe some of the best ways to come up with a startup idea is to like take a technology, whether it's mobile, whether it's internet, whether it's the first browser, whatever they were using, doing in the 80s and just applying it to existing businesses. Um, you know, it's like, okay, we have law. Now we're going to layer the internet over it. Or like, okay, we have taxis. Let's layer mobile over it. I mean, to me, at least maybe, maybe I have a bias in my own way when it comes to manufacturing. Like it's not that different. It's just like you're taking something new and you're layering it onto something that you know, that demand exists for, whether it's taxis plus mobile or staplers plus newly opened up communist country. You know, it's, it's just putting two things together that, that didn't exist together before. Yeah. I think the other big thing is the monopoly sort of possibility within it, which I guess I don't think it has to be. Well, it definitely does not have to be zero to one to end up getting a monopoly. And I don't think a zero to one thing inherently gives you a monopoly. But I think that was like, that's the other like big takeaway that I have from this is most people talk sort of negatively about monopolies and whatnot. And Peter Thiel is just like, I only want to invest in monopolies. That is the only thing where you're actually going to make profits. And that is like a, you know, classic econ 101 kind of thing in, you know, perfectly competitive markets, profits are zero. But I think the just honesty and like candor on like, this is what I'm trying to do, especially given like the litigious society we exist in is like really refreshing. Well, he, he also wrote the book in like when 20, so he, this, well, the book was published in 2014, right? And yeah. it, the original lectures were in 2009. I'm, I don't know if he's publishing the same book in 2020, but anyway, we kind of with all the anti-monopoly, whatever you want to call it, focus on Facebook. Amazon and Google, he might have been more careful. And I've seen him in later interviews be like, well, I can't say certain things because I'm on the board of Facebook and stuff like that. I've seen him say that. Well, his, remember the people reading this book did not necessarily take Econ 101, right? There's a general sentiment in society that's anti-monopoly without really understanding what a monopoly really is or understanding really the implications for, of a monopoly on society from all the different viewpoints. So I, I think that he's writing to a general audience here and those who have a little bit more of a background in economics from a college degree, et cetera, his points are pretty obvious too. Well, I think in his book, doesn't he argue that monopolies, like one of his justifications for only investing in monopolies is that they don't, they don't last. And not only do they not last, but oftentimes it's not government, which kills them. 
Yeah, he absolutely does say that while you'll have a monopoly for some period, new technology will ultimately probably displace what you were doing. It's very difficult when you are, you know, enjoying your monopoly profits to notice what's on the horizon and begin to invest there. And it's, you know, why startups end up being able to be so successful. Does he not also say, I I don't know if I read this in the book or not, but these monopoly profits enable the creation of new businesses because businesses that are not monopolies that are engaging in tough competition can't afford to invest in exciting new technologies, R&D and stuff like that. Um, he might say something along those lines. I mean, he, de- he definitely says there's a, let me see, there's a quote here. It's hard to develop new things in big organizations, and it's even harder to do it by yourself. Bureaucratic hierarchies move slowly and entrenched interests shy away from risk. And the most dysfunctional organizations signaling that work is being done becomes a better strategy for career advancement than actually doing work. If this describes your company, you should quit now. <laughs> Don't but I that. think, but, but he also <laughs> clearly speaks really highly of monopolies. And he's, let's see, there's a, uh, if you want to create and capture lasting value, don't build an undifferentiated commodity business. Every monopoly is unique, but they usually share some combination of the following characteristics. Proprietary technology, network effects, economies of scale, and branding. Um, I don't have the rest of the quote, but I think he goes on to say that like a lot of them have you know multiple of those four and that those tend to be the, the best businesses, like having network effects plus economies of scale, um, having proprietary technology plus network effects, those kinds of things. Like, like I mean, Facebook kind of has all four of those. Although the proprietary technology has probably been, you know, largely knocked off now. PHP. <laughs> All right. So what do you guys want to talk about now? I mean, monopolies. Sounds good. I mean, deal's right. I think we're all in agreement here. Like, yeah, go for it. If you're an investor, why would you want to invest in something besides monopoly? Kind of just, especially in venture capital, where so many of these businesses like end up as zeros, like you kind of have to go for gold. It's, uh, I mean, it's obvious once you get it. Yeah, I think you're right. We can probably move on from that one. Um, I th- I th- he does a lot with power laws, which I found interesting. Um, so he talks about how venture returns are a part of power laws. If you do start your own company, you must remember the power law to operate it well. The most important things are singular. One market will probably be better than all others. One distribution strategy usually dominates all others. Time and decision-making themselves follow a power law, and some moments matter for more than others. So what are your guys' thoughts on that from the perspective of a founder and then from the perspective of a venture capitalist said another way like is peter thiel a venture capitalist because he's like well companies are power laws and while i do advocate that everyone has a deterministic view of the future you know i I do know that when i invest in 10 companies one is going to have returns are going to far exceed the following nine by 10 because that's what a power law is um so i want to be a venture capitalist you know is that what he's doing or does he just prefer it? I mean, like, how do you, basically what I'm trying to say is how do you reconcile diversification in a venture capitalist versus a founder picking a single company, knowing that there are these crazy power law returns? Well, I think it's like the the scale of your return, right? So if you are right and you get the one power law level, you know, breakout company, you're going to make a lot more money than the venture capitalist who put, you know, 1% of their total fund into that one particular thing. They'll make a lot. And his big thing is that, yeah, the his single biggest investments always dwarf the entire rest of the fund. He tends to do actually, I think, relatively few investments in each thing. I think he says he does like five to seven, which is much less than a lot of other uh, VCs tend to do. But yeah, fundamentally, if, if it's a power law thing, you would think that the VC strategy would be to 
I don't know, find an industry that you think is going to succeed and buy the top 10 because, you know, one of those top 10 is really going to break out. But he says, like, no, that's not how it works at all. Like, you need to find the one that's really going to succeed and you'll be wrong, you know, a decent amount of the time. But when you are right, you'll be just so much more successful than, you know, trying to just buy an industry. Right. That's one of the frustrations with VCs, right, is that they they only invest in companies that they think can be hundred million, billion dollar companies. They're not interested in investing in companies that can be $10 million companies. They only take really big bets. And so that means that there's not as much investment pool for the companies that might be pretty innovative, but don't really have the potential to, to be explosively innovative. I think they're venture capitalists and VCs for $10 million companies. I just don't think they're famous. Like you can raise money for that. Absolutely. It's um, probably not venture capital. It's probably angel investors. It is venture capital. Technically, it's just it's not like Silicon Valley quintessential startup venture capital in tech crunch. You know, what I mean, it's still technically venture capital. I'm right. sure there's someone who calls themselves a VC and who is only looking for $10 million returns on some businesses. Do so, not make yeah. me go into Wikipedia and read to you what venture capital a venture capitalist is. Um, maybe you can do that while I make this point. I mean, it's a, Molson, it's a well-known thing in the zeitgeist that, that venture capital firms don't go after medium-sized companies. They, they go after only companies that can potentially be... But there are totally venture capital firms that do go after smaller companies. Totally, they exist. They're, they're, okay, it's just, it's not what's generally considered the the target for most venture capital firms. For the famous ones, yeah, I agree with you. That's not Sequoia's target. That's not A sixteen Z's target, but they exist. All right, so uh, so going back to that question, right? So maybe as an entrepreneur, you kind of like want to mimic the venture capitalist strategy with power laws, but what you want to do is instead of like investing a million dollars in ten different amazing power law companies, you want to do the same thing with your time. So you're like, okay, the companies I found are going to have power law returns. I've got 10 like totally zany ideas ranging from, you know, Airbnb, having people sleep in the next room in your house to, like I said, pants for, pants for cats. And you just say, all right, I'm going to dedicate like five hours of my time to this one. Then I'm going to move five hours to that one. And then you double down on what works, which the one is most likely to generate those power law returns, but kind of, What's strange about that is that in this book, right, he, he advocates that that's not, that's like a problem with our society, that we don't have a determinate or deterministic view of the future. We don't say like, hey, this is what I want to do. This is why we should do it. This is a great thing. What we do instead is we make lots of little micro bets and we just kind of like see what works and just kind of like hope it all works out for the best, um, stuff like that. So I, I guess my question is like, how do you reconcile those those, to me, conflicting ideas within the same book. I think it's probably really difficult, and it depends on what the business is, that you can really make any progress with only doing five hours of work. I mean, uh, you shared that um, Masayoshi-san story where he uh, was spending five minutes a day working on uh, coming up with inventions and managed to make, I forget what it was, $3.2 million over 18 months or something like that. So obviously there are some people that, that can work that way. But for me, I think I do need to like fully focus in one area to really get deep enough into it to have, I mean, I, I haven't founded any companies, so I guess you should, you should take anything I have to say about it with a, with a pound of salt. You can know pretty early. I think you can know earlier than people think as well. 
is is that the way you operate? I know you founded like a couple of different things, but are there, you know, five other things you're always experimenting with or are you just, you know, doubling down on the businesses that are working at this point? Yeah, sadly. I wish I was like I wish I could be like Masayoshi son or like Peter Thiel suggests I should be and just like kind of close my close my eyes and just like have this like killer view of the future and how I'm going to achieve it. And I just like go for it. But in reality, I just like have lots of cracked out ideas that typically are overlaps of two not typically connecting fields. That's usually where I get my like innovations from. And then I just say like, like, Hey, I'm just going to, you know, invest a small amount of money. And and I, I'm clever about that. Like I try not to spend too much money and you can see like really fast when you have a winner. It's, it's weird. Uh, it, it doesn't take long. And it's very rare that you get into a situation where like something starts out slow and you're like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to give it some more time, see how that goes. And then it goes like a rocket ship. Not at all. Usually like when you're onto something, like you make a small investment and like instantly the dogs are eating the dog food and you're like, bam, okay, this is something that I need to invest more time in. So to kind of answer your question, you know, like I keep the plates spinning that are generating the cash. And then I'm always keeping my eyes open for other interesting things. Like cat pants. I mean, well, sure. Cat pants. This is a pretty good example. I no, like you take two things that don't usually go together that no one's put ever together before, whether it's Chinese manufacturing and staplers or, mobile and taxis or cats and pants and you just overlap them and sometimes you get these very strange results and it, it just works uh that or i mean yeah i mean that's basically what it is i mean it, it, all these things like whether it's facebook or airbnb is like a, a little bit unique but you're just taking something that's new that's coming into the floor and then layering it onto something that there's already demand for and just putting it together and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and that's mostly how I come up with stuff that's innovative that works. But the whole concept of not having to double down in your current businesses is only possible if you, you're successful, Molson, but you have to be extremely, extremely wealthy to the, to the point of you can just hire other people to do the double down work on your current businesses. You'll still need to watch them, of course, so that you can focus your energy on something else. Uh, I think it's uh, being able to just jump from idea to idea to idea is a privilege that comes with extreme wealth. I, I disagree completely. I mean, I think that that's like one, a terrible mentality to have if you want to like do something in this world. I mean, there's so many different ways to de-risk new ventures. In the physical product world, like you don't have to order a container of a new product. Like you can make a sample and everyone with like a brain like if you have a job, just like you, you work weekends until you can bang out that sample. And kind of in the olden days, what you would do is you bring that sample to like retailers and be like, hey, would you like to buy this product? And they're like, yeah, sure. And then they buy it and then they receive it like three to six months later. And maybe today, all you need to do is scrape enough money to, to, to put together your Kickstarter. You don't need to be extremely wealthy in order to do a Kickstarter. That, that wasn't what I said. I said that if you already have several businesses that you're working on that you don't necessarily have the capacity to do additional new businesses unless you have the wealth to pay somebody else to oversee your previous businesses. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, you can also work on weekends and stuff like that. But I mean, you said like extremely wealthy, like you made it seem like it was impossible. And it's like, well, no, not at all. 
So when he talks about the, I, you tweeted about this, Molson. I, th- I thought I thought it was like one of the the most important takeaways from the book is uh, the the questions that he looks at when whenever he's uh, looking to invest in something. So I'll, I'll just read them and then let's let's talk about it. So one, the engineering question: Can you create breakthrough technology instead of incremental improvements? Two, the timing question: Is now the right time to start your particular business? Three, the monopoly question: Are you starting with a big share of a small market? Four, the people question: Do you have the right team? Five, the distribution question. Do you have a way to not just create, but deliver your product? Six, the durability question. Will your market position be defensible 10 and 20 years into the future? Seven, the secret question. Have you identified a unique opportunity that others don't see? So I I thought this was like a really good synthesis. And he actually says you pretty much need all seven for him to do the investment. I think he said there's a couple instances where they might succeed. So like six out of seven was okay. Yeah. But that you really do need all those things to work out. And I you know, have read a bunch of different of these kinds of books. We've done we've done all these podcasts and whatnot. But I thought this was one of the the nicest like quick checklist for uh, do I have a you know idea that's really worth going after that I'll definitely use in the future. Yeah, it's good, and it it shows you how hard <laughs> it is. I mean, like think about how difficult it is to get that many things right. And then as an entrepreneur, I mean, I think it's easier as a venture capitalist. I, I don't think it's easy to raise venture capital money for a venture capital firm, but as an entrepreneur, especially as a first-time entrepreneur, imagine how much thinking you need to do and how much wisdom you need to have and probably some luck, right? In order to get all seven of those things right. Like, man, that is that is tough. Are you going to quit any of your businesses having reviewed the seven questions? <laughs> well, I mean, we are not on all firing on all cylinders when it comes to those seven questions. I mean, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but uh, yeah, well, I mean, we're not doing it perfectly for sure. And also the markets change, right? And when the, like everything that we started at the beginning, like there was definitely, we had the first mover advantage or we had like a little micro monopoly for a little while, but sometimes those, those monopolies dry up as it were. Uh, so I don't know. I, I read this book and I was like, man, it, it really, it made me want to like start something bigger and something crazier, but I just, I don't know how <laughs> I got to figure out how to do that. I liked his two by two, Molson, you posted it on Twitter as well about different countries and whether they're optimistic and definite or pessimistic and indefinite. And he placed the United States prior to the 1970s as optimistic and definite and the United States today as optimistic and indefinite and China today as definite and pessimistic. The premise behind optimistic versus pessimistic, I think everybody can can understand. So do, do regular people see their lives as getting better in the future? Are they looking forward to what's going to happen in the future? Do they think good things are going to happen? But the, the definite versus indefinite, that was a little bit more squishy for me. What, what was your definition of definite versus indefinite in the context of that two by two? So he gives this like really awesome example of how in the 60s, some like random school teacher guy in San Francisco talked about filling in part of the bay to like build this like new city in the San Francisco Bay. And it, it was a plan. It was, it was very definite. Like engineers looked at it and there was like a definite plan, even though I, maybe I'm in an indefinite world. So I'm struggling to come up with a definite plan. I don't remember exactly how it worked. The Army School of Eng- or Corps of Engineers actually built a like 
two acre model of it. And then they figured out some problems with it from that. So that's why it didn't move forward. But yeah, it was a crazy story that like right now you would definitely be seen as a crackpot if you're like proposing that we dig a couple of lakes and then use that landfill to, you know, create additional you know space in San Francisco. Uh, so basically the idea is we've transitioned from a society where we had plans that were concrete and clear. And we said that in order for us to grow as a society, we need to get to the moon. And this is going to help us technologically because we're going to need to develop all these instruments and new technology in order to get to the moon. And then once we do that, society will be better off. We'll be able to beat the Soviets or whatever the case may be. We have now transitioned to a society where we're still optimistic that maybe, you know, the Soviets are beat. We're optimistic that we're going to beat China, but there's no plan. There's no plan about how things are going to get better. We just kind of assume that they're going to get better. And that's his criticism of the modern United States. And before I pass this over to you, I think he's wrong. China is pretty optimistic. It's not pessimistic. That's an interesting insight. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was how he weaved that into the kind of professions that people do. I know that a lot of our classmates from college became lawyers and work, people who work in finance. And he's very critical of that. He, he says that too many people from, from our generation and the generation before us went into law and finance and not enough people went into manufacturing and engineering and, um, for lack of a better term, uh, industries that invent instead of just shuffle around other people's money and other people's ideas. So I, I found that very powerful. And I thought that it really made me I'm a little biased because I didn't go into law or finance like a lot of my my classmates from college did. But I always thought it was pretty sad um, that that so many people went into these these non-productive industries. Now, when I say non-productive, I don't mean that they don't offer any value to society. What I mean is that they don't offer as much value to society as producing a new invention or creating more cool stuff for all of us to, to have better lives. I mean, I, I agree totally with everything you just said. It just if you look at our cohort of like college classmates, I don't know how creative these people were, but so much brain power just like went into this is a little pejorative, but just like the paper pushing of law and the paper pushing of finance. It's kind of sad. And I'm not saying like I'm out here like creating amazing value and doing innovation and stuff like that, but probably more than the average lawyer. Yeah, there's a there's a quote that I liked, which is the indefiniteness of finance can be bizarre. Think about what happens when successful entrepreneurs sell their company. What do they do with the money? In a financialized world, it unfolds like this. The founders don't know what to do with it, so they give it to a large bank. The bankers don't know what to do with it, so they diversify by spreading it across a portfolio of institutional investors. Institutional investors don't know what to do with their managed capital, so they diversify by amassing a portfolio of stocks. Companies try to increase their share price by generating free cash flows. If they do, they issue dividends or buy back shares, and the cycle repeats. At no point does anyone in the chain know what to do with the money in the real economy. But in an indefinite world, people actually prefer unlimited optionality. Money is more valuable than anything you could possibly do with it. Only in a definite future is money a means to an end, not the end itself. This skepticism of lawyers in particular, finance people too to a lesser extent, has kind of been a theme of several books we've read. Uh, Kiel Morita wrote about it in, in the book we read about Sony. Ross Perot Wrote, wrote about it. He said, you need great people, you need great lawyers, you need great finance people, but they're not as important as they're replaceable compared to the creative people and the salespeople in your company. So uh, it's. In, I think that 
Teal just put it best, I think, of, of any of the books that we read. But I, I think it's actually been a theme reading great entrepreneurs and, and great business people is, is they don't respect the, the lawyers and the finance people as much as they respect the engineers and the product designers and the, the salespeople. Yeah. So I work with a lot of lawyers. I think the other day I was counting that I had like relationships with like over 10, which is way too many. This is like a price of admission to the business game. Lawyers are like super smart. They're expensive. They're difficult. They're oftentimes necessary, but it's just the price of admission to the admit to the innovation game. I mean, if you want to innovate, unfortunately, you know, in a lot of cases, you need a form of, you need to make a patent and to get that patent drafted most likely you need a lawyer. And if you want to enforce that patent, you need a lawyer again. So it's just something that's that's necessary, but not sufficient. But that's not really the issue, right? It's not really about whether or not we need lawyers. Of course, we need lawyers. The issue is that so many of our best and brightest in the United States go, in, go to law school, go, go to work on Wall Street, instead of going to work at a manufacturing company, let's say, or a a science company or, or whatever. So we can't make it so simple and black and white, like lawyers bad, non-lawyers good. It's more, why do we have such a pipeline of that people going to the best schools, going then to law school? Well, I don't think law school is the problem. I, I, I think that's remained pretty steady. I, I think the problem is actually like finance or finance. I don't even know how to say that word. So I'll give you an example. So first of all, I don't think that the skill set, lawyers are super smart, but I don't think that the skill set that makes you more often than not, that makes you a good lawyer, especially if it's a litigator, especially if it's outside of the patent field, is the skill set that enables you to really invent and do stuff. Okay, contrast that to finance, right? You, in the past 20 years, we've all heard about how hedge funds have been hiring like physicists, engineers, quants. These people are inventors. So if you're going to point to a field law or finance, it's like robbing America of innovation, I would definitely choose finance over law. I actually clerked at a law firm in college. So I, I was seriously thinking about going into law, even though my dad is a lawyer and he told me not to. <laughs> um, but working in, a, I, I clerked at Davis Polk and Wardwell, which is, you know, whatever, one of the one of the top law firms in the world. It was just so mind numbing and boring and everyone hated their job. And it's just like, it pays very well, but it just creates this you know, you're still billing by the hour. So like you have to work crazy hours. You're completely at the whim of your clients. And, you know, I am very glad that I didn't end up going to law school. I think I, I enjoyed like the study of the law. I took law and economics. I took philosophy of law. I took sociology of law in college. I, I really liked all the well, sociology of the law wasn't, wasn't as good as the other two. But, but, you know, really, I find it fascinating thinking through legal theory, reading legal documents. I definitely have like that kind of brain a little bit. But I think the actual monotony of the day to day would have killed me. I mean, one of my best friends is a lawyer. A lot of there's a lot of lawyers in my family, uh, so I said some things that probably they didn't like. But what I want to really say is that Teal, you said a key word there, David. You said people go into it to make a lot of money and then they're miserable, right? People go. That's what Teal's saying. Teal's saying people go into it for the money because we're indefinite. Because as a society, we don't have grand plans. We don't inspire people. To uh, that they're going to make a great living through invention or through doing new things that we in that that leads people to take the safe route to make a lot of money. If you're smart and you're capable of doing law work, you can be quite wealthy doing it. And so people prefer to take that as their route to the good life 
than taking the risk of going into something more creative. And the big reason for that is that our culture is so indefinite that I think that was his point. Yeah. And as a former consultant, consulting was certainly <laughs> the, the exact same thing. Um, there's a lot of the like indefiniteness, like keeping your options open, all of that. I, I think actually there, yeah, there is a, a quote here. Private equity investors and management consultants don't start new businesses. They squeeze extra efficiency from old ones with incessant procedural optimizations. It's no surprise that these fields attract disproportionate numbers of high-achieving Ivy League optionality chasers. What could be a more appropriate reward for two decades of resume building than a seemingly elite process-oriented career that promises to keep options open? I mean, you, thought you have a great counterexample to that, uh, which you told us before the podcast. But So how do we fix this? We, we have to change the culture. That, that's Teal's point, is that we have to change how we talk to young people about what it means to really be a productive member of society, right? Being a productive member of society might mean that you have to dream a little bigger and you have to be a little bit more ambitious than just wanting to be financially successful. When was the last time you opened up Instagram and you're like, oh, cool, one of my friends like in his garage invented this really cool thing? Well, it happens to me all the time. I don't use Instagram, but I use Twitter. But um, I see people making interesting software all the time because I'm in the kind of computer science space. And that's oftentimes people working on small teams or even by themselves. And I'm impressed all the time by, by what people come up with. But um, I think, I think it's, there's a much higher barrier to entry to making physical products. And you would know more about that, Molson. Uh, yeah, there's a higher barrier. I, just, I, don't, I don't think it's as high as people make it out. People are always making excuses to not do new things. So I just don't want to, I don't want to encourage that. Yeah. It's really easy to tell yourself how hard it's going to be to do something. It's a lot harder to actually just go out and try and do it and see what happens. And I have never really done it. So I uh, continue to do my nine to five and dream of starting something, but I should probably spend more time actually doing that. But the thing is, you don't really work nine to five, like very, very few people who actually are in successful careers in white collar jobs, for lack of a better word, actually work nine to five. The vast majority of people work 50, 60 plus hours a week and they're working so hard, but they're not actually creating something that like they're really going to be that proud of sometimes at the end of the day. Right. Because, again, they are just shuffling around stuff that other people already created. So. Wouldn't it be more inspiring to tell young people, you know what, the, uh, the thing you really want out of life is to be able to be known for something, not so much to be able to be known for your bank account. I, uh, I know a guy who has like a multi-hundred K white collar job and a, a side business that does like multiple millions of dollars every year. And he's just kept his white collar job throughout the whole period. He just has an Amazon business and he also works in the oil industry. And he, he told, basically told me that he can get all everything he needs done in like two or three hours. And he just spends the rest of the time at work just working on his business. I don't think it's that uncommon. I think a lot of people who earn a lot of money in corporate America don't actually... They spend a lot... Well, they used to spend a lot of hours at the office, but they don't necessarily work that many hours necessarily. I wonder if there will be a big boom with uh, everyone working remotely right now. Well, obviously, a lot of people are not working at all. So... Hopefully some of them will be inspired to try and create things. But yeah, I, I probably do work eight to six still, but 
I probably, I mean, I don't have a commute. I definitely have more time now than I, than I did before. And I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly productive with my free time, but it's not on starting a business, which it probably should be. If you look at the Google trends, you, this is just a quick point. If you look at the Google trends uh, results for day trading, and you just like look at it starting when people start to work from home, they'll give you kind of a good sense of like how hard people, well, okay, not necessarily because when they're working from home, they can do things like day trading. Ignore what I was saying. But basically, day trading has gone up since people have started working from home. Go back, continue. It's, it's very easy to go from zero to one when you have other people that you can hire to do pieces of the process. It's not easy, but it's, it's easier. Um, it's very hard for somebody who is unemployed or somebody who doesn't have, is working already 60 hours a week just to be able to support their family to do zero to one. So we, we shouldn't underplay that factor, that uh, time and capital are a big part of being able to actually invent new things. I disagree with that. I think that the worst way to go zero to one would be to hire people. I like you literally could not find a worse way to do it. If you want to go zero to one, you have to do it yourself. It's just too difficult a process. I mean, like if you look at those seven things that Teal um, went through, uh, the, the seven things that make something investable, right? That those are, as an entrepreneur, those are the seven things that you should be considering when starting a company, if you see Teal knows what he's talking about. There's no way you can hire that out. You have to do it yourself. All right. Is there anything else in the book that anyone wants to cover? Oh, the we we left like one of the, the coolest things from the whole uh, book on the table and forgot about it. Uh, his contrarian questions. So I'll just read the quote. Whenever I interview someone for a job, I like to ask this question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? This question sounds easy because it's straightforward. Actually, it's very hard to answer. It's intellectually difficult because the knowledge that everyone's taught in school is by definition agreed upon, and it's psychologically difficult because anyone trying to answer must say something she knows to be unpopular. Brilliant thinking is rare, but courage is an even shorter supply than genius. I like that one. I'm not actually sure what my answer to it is necessarily. Do you guys have a good one for what important truth do very few people agree with you on? I, I have one that people s seem to agree with me on when they really think about it, which is that most people who aren't successful in college, it has nothing to do with their intellectual capability. And I think most people really know that when they, when they really think through why people don't do well in college. But I, I've seen it firsthand the last you know, few years working as a college professor. The, the vast majority of people who, who don't do well in college, they don't do well because of personal reasons. It almost never has anything to do with whether or not they were actually, quote unquote, smart enough to do the degree they were in. Almost everybody who, who goes to college is, is smart enough to do the degree they're in. It's almost always an external factor or an internal factor to them, but not related to the academics that, that leads them to, to fail. Yeah, I buy that. And I think you're probably right that on average, when someone, whatever, is looking at a resume and they see a low GPA, they think this person probably isn't very smart. They don't think, oh, I wonder if they had a parent die or, you know, they were struggling with something or, you know, whatever. It can just be that they play a bunch of video games and whatnot. They still may have like the raw horsepower and there's no like external thing that caused it, but they still, you know, failed not because of raw intelligence, but just, you know, effort and willpower. I think the flip of that statement is actually more controversial than the statement you just made. Like, <laughs> if you say like, nah, like you failed because you're stupid. <laughs> like, I think that's more controversial and you'll actually take more heat for that than the other way around. 
Right. That's not true, though. It's very clearly not the reason that most people fail out of college. Right. But then but then it doesn't meet Teal's criteria. The few people agree with you component is what Molson's pointing at. Right. Well, I, I wasn't I wasn't trying to be the most controversial. I was trying to be the most contrarian. Those are two different things. So when most people think about it, it's not the first thing that comes to their mind of why people fail out of college is for personal reasons. So just saying something that is different than what most people think makes it contrarian, whether or not it rises up a lot of debate and shocks people, that would be controversial. Okay, that, that's a good point. Um, I got some, here, I got some hot ones for you, right? It's kind of my job. <laughs> um, all right, so I listed some of these out on Twitter, but I think let's go with testosterone, not uh, like falling testosterone being a part of kind of the, dull, the innovation doldrums that we might be in. I think that's, it's contrarian. It's also controversial and it, it might be right. I'm not sure. How do we know that testosterone is falling? Like what good data was there in the past? There are a whole bunch of, uh, I don't know what good data. I've basically just looked at studies that like control for conflating factors like exercise. I don't know how many of them control for exercise, but things like obesity and uh, I don't know consumption of soy and stuff like that and testosterone is falling after you do those controls. So I guess I, I don't know that much about it. So is it like rapidly falling currently or just like now we're significantly lower than 50 years ago or like what's the... Uh, yeah, I think it's just been slowly falling and we're significantly lower than we were 50 years ago. I also think that in order to do a lot of innovation, you need to have like spatial visual intelligence and that correlates with testosterone, I think particularly in the womb. And so... I think it could be part of it. Well, that doesn't really surprise me at all because there's so many testosterone boosting products that are being sold all the time on the radio, on television, and magazine ads. So uh, that doesn't really surprise me. We wouldn't need so many testosterone boosting products if testosterone was at a good level. Paul Graham should be like, you want to start a good startup? You want to have a good idea? Take like new mail, <laughs> you know? You low T simp. <laughs> in order to get the yc you need to up that t i don't know um some other ones uh way molson are, have you measured your testosterone are you taking testosterone supplements no i'm i'm afraid to um no i've never measured my testosterone well you know that, that what does that say about the fragility of the masculine uh psyche that you're afraid to find out whether or not you have low testosterone like having low testosterone is well, I, I wouldn't say like I'm afraid to the point where like I would never do it. It's just like yeah, I do. I, I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah, I'm a little bit afraid. I, I it is distressing to me to 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 think that it is possible that I am low testosterone, but it's not something that's like ending my life or something like that. I think he meant he was afraid to take the supplements, not that he was afraid. No, to no, test no. I, mean, I did, no. I, I would have re reservations about taking that test and just be scared. Kind of like I'd be, I'd have reservations about taking a test that would tell me whether or not I'm going to have a heart attack within the next 20 years or something like that. I mean, having low testosterone is really not the end of the world. Like it, it doesn't say that much about you. It's a biological thing that is not related to whether or not you're going to be necessarily successful in life. Sure, there, I'm sure there's some benefits as a male to having higher testosterone. Otherwise, everyone wouldn't be shooting for it. But it, it doesn't, I think that's, you know, that's a very uh, masculine, I don't know what the opposite of feminine view of the world, I guess masculine view of the world to, to be so preoccupied with it, I think. But anyway.
I don't really care. Um, but Teal takes HGH. I think. I think I read that somewhere. I know he's obsessed with all the uh, life extension stuff, and he takes blood transfusions from younger people and whatnot too. He's literally a vampire. Right, do we have any other good contrarian things that not a lot of people agree with that are actually right? I mean, like in a way, if you have an answer to that question, like. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the, the testosterone one is a little bit difficult, but a, a lot of the answers to these questions are themselves wonderful startup ideas. So you probably shouldn't share it if you have a really good answer. <laughs> and if you're going to share it, you should share it with Peter Thiel and be like, yeah, I'll share it with you, but you got to write me a check for $5 million, right, bro? He only gives 500K to Facebook. Why do I get $5 million? Um, the, he does the have the, the business changed. The business version of our contrarian question is what valuable company is nobody building? This question is harder than it looks because your company could create a lot of value without becoming very valuable itself. Creating value is not enough. You also need to capture some of the value you create. But yeah, I don't know. I guess my contrarian thing is not like super uncommon, but I do think that the US dollar is likely to be displaced by either a non-state entity or some like compilation of various, you know, currencies and whatnot as like the the way that international trade and whatnot goes on in, you know, the next 10 years. Very possible. I, I could see that happening. And what's been happening right now is obviously putting it at the greatest stress that it ever has been before. Well, actually, probably Nixon going off the gold standard was the, the greatest stress. But anyway, since then. Yeah, second worst. Um, do either of you guys have definite or concrete plans to start companies or do you engage in innovation in the future? I, I have a definite plan that I want to start a software company when I'm a little bit older and a little bit wiser. Um, Sounds pretty I, indefinite, Kopech. <laughs> uh, I I know the general like areas I want to work in in it. I it's it's definite that I'm going to do it. I mean, if that's if that's what you mean, if you mean, do I know exactly the exact product that that I'm going to be working on? I can't tell you exactly. No. Yeah, same. I have indefinite, very indefinite plans to do so. It's the reason I became a product manager to be able to you know get more comfortable technically and working with engineers and. I constantly write down ideas and whatnot, but I should probably spend more time just choosing one of them and really going deep on it instead of just, you know, musing and reading these books and chatting with you guys. There are like a bunch of examples of people who've, who've started companies while they had full-time jobs. So, so do it. You can do it. Yeah, I can. Um, technically, it's a little bit complicated. I do have like some clauses in my contract that would it doesn't say that i can't do it it just says like i have to get my boss's approval and i have to like go before some ethics committee or whatever to make sure there's no conflict of interest i i I mean i work on it you know i i write software in my spare time do i take all of it far enough that i could really say wow this is something i want to put in the marketplace no and that's a disappointment to me um i get distracted by writing these books like right now i have a couple software products i'm kind of working on but then I also have a book deadline, at, you know, at the beginning of July. And so that has to take precedence right now. But yeah, I, I, it's a regret of mine that I don't put more time wholeheartedly into just one or two of my software products instead of constantly jumping from one to the other. I put time into, into definite things all the time. And I'm always making like, I'm always having cracked out ideas. And then I'm, I write them down like you do short. And then I, and then I like stew over them. And then I'm always like, to Kopech's point, I'm always looking for ways to take my time out of businesses and obligations that I think are repeatable and process oriented um, by basically hiring and creating software and SOPs. 
And then that allows me to allocate my time towards like crazy things. And yeah, so I've always got a, a bunch of those going at the same time. And then when they work, I double down on it. And I don't know, hopefully, you know, climb up the ladder to who knows where with each successive success. So Molson, uh, for next month, we're going to be reading Only the Paranoid Survive by Andy Grove. And I know this was your pick. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the book? Uh, yeah, so it's been some time since I've read it. And so I'm looking forward to rereading it because it, it's it's fitting for what one of my companies is going through right now. Intel was either selling memory or microprocessors. And then they they basically were on the receiving end of a bunch of really difficult competition coming out of Japan. And all we, uh, only the Paranoid Survive tells the story of how Intel was basically able to pivot this huge company away from uh, the area of competition, which links back to zero to one uh, that they were getting from the Japanese and towards a profitable new business under Andy Grove's stewardship. And it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I remember some, uh, some good stuff in there. So that's what we're reading and I'm pumped for it. Yeah, me too. I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks, Molson. Before we go, does anyone want to plug anything and let us know how listeners can get in touch with you? So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at David G. Short. And actually, I just started writing a little bit on Medium. So at David Short there, I wrote a couple articles on agile team meetings and ceremonies and questions to answer in my new job. All right, I'm going to say something weird. I want to plug you. Uh, (laughs) What I mean by that is like, if you've got an idea that you've written down and then you've thought about it and then on some other weekend you've thought about it again and you haven't been able to reject it. So you've really like put it through the ringer in terms of everything that you've tried to, you've put it through the ringer in, in terms of, of attempting to attack your idea in such a way that you can avoid a potential future failure. And this idea has still managed to survive in your brain. You just got to, Bleep and do it. You just gotta do it. You gotta figure out a way to just, man, you can't say anything in 2020 without getting in trouble. You gotta figure out a way to commit a small amount of resources and be courageous into figuring out whether this idea is gonna work because you're gonna regret it later on. And if you fail, that's fine. You're gonna learn something. And there's always ways to do things without taking risks. So I'm gonna plug you and your ability to, you know, achieve your, your side project or your dream. All right. And my Twitter is at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I was posting about programming. Occasionally I'll post about business. And I also want to remind everybody to like the podcast on your podcast player of choice, whether that's Overcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, whether that's Google Podcasts, whether that's Spotify. Leave us a review. Tell your friends about the podcast. It really helps the show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next month.